Man, Jay, Exodus is pretty intense. Well, he's had plenty of time to work up to it, Miles. Dude's been around since... The Silver Age? The 12th century. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 371 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to us, I suppose. We've both been traveling. Right, uh, yeah. How was your trip? Uh, pretty good. It was really nice to see my folks. It was distinctly less nice to have to ride in an airplane after the mask mandate had been lifted. How was yours? Uh, pretty good. My wife and I each got alternately possessed by malice, but, you know, it worked out in the end. It was nice spending some time together. Anyway, what we are coming back to is a somewhat strange era in Excalibur. We, of course, recently covered the end of Warren Ellis's run and the Pride and Wisdom miniseries that he did around the same time, And now we are moving on to the last big Excalibur run, written by a guy named Ben Robb. That's R-A-A-B, like broccoli, I assume. And uh, we're also covering a couple of fill-in issues that take place between the runs. So we're getting quite the grab bag of Excalibur creators in this episode. Like, I don't even want to know how many pencilers there are between these three issues. I don't know that I would call these issues fill-ins. I mean, they're between main writer runs... But they're within continuity, they're part of ongoing story, they're very, very connected to ongoing story, and they're, they're I mean, maybe, maybe bridge issues? That's a better way of putting it, yeah. It's a little strange, because the first two issues, that's 104 and 105, while they are a two-part story, have almost completely different creative teams, which is weird and kind of makes me wonder what was going on in marvel editorial at the time like you'd think if you're going to have two issues done by totally different teams you wouldn't have one continual story between the two yeah they're not even plotted by the same person which really surprised me that said they hold together pretty well and once again we do have an example of having far too many artists on issues but having them all be good enough that it basically works out yeah the transitions aren't seamless but they're not too jarring either So, Jay, before we get to Ben Robb's first issue, we have those two bridge issues that are one story, but they have sort of an A-plot and a B-plot. I don't know. How do you want to cover those two? What I would probably do is lump those two together and then look at 106 separately. Okay, cool. Sounds like a plan. So before we do that, maybe we should talk about what's been happening with Excalibur until this point. So Excalibur, which is Europe's premier superhero team, or at least the one headlining a comic— is taking a breather after facing off with Black Air, the British Hellfire Club, the sorceress and time traveler controlling those groups, and a literal giant demon under London. It's been a long week. And it's kind of a long story. Uh, We covered it in episodes 337 and 359 if you're interested, but you really don't have to worry about that stuff for now. Right. What you do need to know is that the team is based out of Scotland's Muir Island, a research facility owned and run by the X-Men's longtime ally Moira McTaggart, currently the first human, as far as we knew at the time, to contract the previously mutant-only AIDS allegory, the Legacy Virus. Although, based on current continuity, she—you know what? Let's not worry about that part, either. The point is, the team consists of a number of members, including Mystical Brits, Captain Britain, and Megan— Those are our non-mutant team members. 
Leading the group at this point is former X-Men Nightcrawler, and we've also got former X-Men Shadowcat and Colossus running around. There's former spy Pete Wisdom, former New Mutants Wolfsbane, and Doug Locke? So Doug Locke is a little complicated, and at this point in the comic, we don't know what his deal is. I mean, well, we, Miles and I do, and you listeners who've been listening long do, because we've spoiled that for you, but... At this point in Excalibur, the data we're working with is that he's a techno-organic being who looks a hell of a lot like dead New Mutant Doug Ramsey, and specifically dead New Mutant Doug Ramsey when he was merged with techno-organic New Mutant Warlock, also apparently dead at this point. He's been very clear, though, that he is very much his own entity, not Doug and not Warlock. Instead, Douglock. And that's been really rough for two team members in particular, those being Wolfsbane and Shadowcat, both of whom were very, very close to Doug before his death, way back in Fall of the Mutants. As for Excalibur member Colossus, he's been through even worse, namely the series of horrible deaths that have left him the only known surviving member of his family. It's gotten to the point where it's almost comically dark. Yeah, yeah, we're getting into Jude the Obscure territory here. Colossus had followed Professor Xavier without question for years, but given Xavier's dreams and ability to protect Colossus's loved ones, Piotr figured he might as well try a different path, and decided to join Magneto's cult-like followers, the Acolytes, way back in Fatal Attractions. After that went about as well as you'd expect it to, Colossus is now back with his friend Nightcrawler and his ex-girlfriend Shadowcat on Excalibur. And that brings us to the first post-Warren Ellis issue of Excalibur, number 104, Buried Secret, and also number 105, Hard Truths. Let's do the creator rundown. So Excalibur 104 is plotted by John Arcudi, scripted by James Felder, penciled by Brian Hitch, Rob Haynes, and Scott Koblish, inked by Paul Neary, Scott Koblish, and Rick Ketchum, colored by Ariane Lenchwick, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Excalibur 105 is written by Keith Giffen, penciled by Brian Hitch, inked by Paul Neary, Brian Hitch, and Robin Riggs, and colored by Ariane Lenchwack with letters, again, by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Man, we're getting into an era where the credits are increasingly populated with people I know personally, and it's weird. I know, right? Like, you did uh, editorial back at Dark Horse Comics when John Arcudi was writing BPRD, right? Yeah, for a, we're, I worked directly with him for a very long time. And I have to say, the issue that he plots, number 104 kind of makes me wish he'd just straight up taken over as at least the regular plotter on this series. It's it's pretty solid. We know he can write the hell out of a team book. Oh yeah, listeners, if you're not familiar with BPRD, that's the team that Hellboy was on for a long time. Um, I think they were at least in the first couple of Hellboy movies, and most of their book was just them after Hellboy left. And if you're looking for kind of a weird, dark, mythological, supernatural book that kind of feels like X-Men, BPRD's quite good. And while we don't know him, Brian Hitch does a fair bit of the pencils in these issues, and especially when he's inked by Paul Neary, he really makes this book feel like Excalibur. Paul Neary, of course, did a lot of Alan Davis's inks back in the Alan Davis run. So, as Miles mentioned earlier in the episode, we've got two plot lines here intersecting, and what I'm going to do is break them apart and look at them separately, since they don't really connect aside from the very beginnings. The A-plot has to do with Doug Locke, who is having identity feelings because people, read Kitty Pride, keep insisting that he's actually Doug Ramsey. And apparently the fans were thinking about this too, or at least Marvel thought they were. I dug up the solicitation for number 104, which reads, 
Douglock is really Doug Ramsey, right? Or is he Warlock? Or both? Beats us, but this issue begins to answer the question once and for all. But listeners, we know better than to ever trust the phrase once and for all in comics, right? It does actually begin to answer the question. That's true, that's true. It just uh, will not resolve it. Eventually it'll be a random M-Tech miniseries by Louis Simonson that does. Well, it determines distinctly that he's not Doug Ramsey, or at least he's not physically, he's, he's not the physical body of Doug Ramsey. Right, that's true, and quite graphically. So, as far as the first issue in this story, and the first part of the Doug-Kitty plotline, you'd mentioned that it's more of a bridge story than a fill-in story, and I agree, like, this really does feel like kind of the, the start of a new arc, like the quiet check-in that leads into what's next. Yeah, kind of. This this story does. The other one is less that. Here, Kitty keeps on basically pushing on, on Doug's identity, who she wants him to be. And after a confrontation in, with Pete Wisdom, who insists that Doug Locke is not in fact Doug, Kitty co-opts the Midnight Runner, that's Excalibur's ship, to fly to Westchester for a whirlwind Reasons I Think You're Actually Doug Ramsey tour with Doug and with Rain, who is very, very sympathetic to Doug Luck's position, having herself gotten over her own no, but you're actually Doug phase. So she is she's coming along as moral support for both of them under the circumstances. Absolutely, yeah. So did this remind you a lot of New Mutants number 64? Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. And I, I really wish there were more direct callbacks to that issue in this, actually, because, well, in this, this whole story arc, because I feel like it, it pulls on so many of the same strings that if you're familiar with, with that New Mutants issue, like, it can't help but evoke it. And I think some, some more textual acknowledgement of that would have been cool. And as a reminder, New Mutants number 64 was maybe the saddest comic we've ever covered. I mean, Little Kid Ilyana's death was pretty sad, too, but this one was rough. Number 64 was the issue where Doug had died in Fall of the Mutants already, and Warlock kind of techno-organically animated Doug's body to bring Doug around to all the places he had enjoyed when he was alive, to remind him how to be alive so he would maybe decide to come back to life, and it was devastating. Yeah, it's it's just a brutally, brutally sad story. And this one, this one obviously is somewhat different and is coming from a somewhat different angle, but it, it definitely feels like an echo to that. It does, yeah. And here, of course, it's Kitty that can't get over Doug being dead, not Warlock, and uh, thankfully she doesn't have the ability to weekend at Bernie's his corpse, uh, so that's a plus. She does have a different ability that plays in for some, some pretty uh, alarming hijinks, because they start at the graveyard where Doug is buried, and Kitty insists that Doug's grave must be empty, and then phases in, only to discover that, no, it is definitely not. It definitely has Doug Ramsey's corpse in it. Oh yeah, that last page is just Kitty's face phasing downward through the top of a coffin with a bunch of dirt under uh, above it. Like, the top of the page is just dirt, which I think does get across just the, the thoroughness of, the, of Doug's burial. And looking up is um a skull with blonde hair and a suit. Like, that's just Doug's corpse, and then a big to-be-continued below. It's uh, quite visceral. Yeah, it's it's pretty rough. But let's talk about this a little. Like, you mentioned that Wolfsbane has come to terms with Doug Locke not being Doug, and Kitty has not, but I thought we kind of addressed this in the Ellis run. 
you, do you remember that scene in Excalibur number 81 where Kitty got in a bar fight and was sitting on the unconscious body of a guy she beat up and then Doug sat down with her and they just sort of talked about how things were, where they were going to go, who Doug Locke really was? Yeah, I do. And it's odd seeing this after that because re- I'd, re- I'd remembered this story, but I'd remembered it coming much, much earlier in Doug Locke's tenure on the team. Yeah, and it is mentioned in the issue that Kitty's been more hopeful about Doug Locke really being Doug ever since the London's Burning story, where he was integrated with the whole demon circuit under London, and she got to know him a little more as a person. But I don't know. On the one hand, I don't know that it fits continuity. On the other hand, it's a story that's pretty good and I'm okay with, so maybe that's fine. Yeah, I'm I'm willing to to fudge that inconsistency in the name of a good story. I do like, though, that Wolfsbane is the one that is with it, that is in touch with what's really going on. Remember, she and Kitty are around the same age. Kitty was as old as the New Mutants when the New Mutants were getting started. So Rain's probably a little younger, but as they've aged, that year or so makes less of a difference. And Rain has actually matured quite a bit, especially during her tenure on X-Factor. So it's kind of cool seeing the sort of stereotypically innocent young character be a little more on top of reality than one of the X-Men who's considered the most uh, precocious. You know, that actually brought me back very directly to the immediate aftermath of Doug's death when Kitty shows up and basically straight up blames the New Mutants for it. I remember that, yeah. Speaking of devastating scenes, really, that whole era, everything about Doug Ramsey's death was just such a gut punch. It was so effectively done. Brett Blevins' art was amazing. Louis Simonson's writing was amazing. They are a brutal team. They really are. Do you remember that time we interviewed Louise Simonson? Like, at this point, so many episodes ago, and she was just giggling about causing horrible emotional and logistical pain to her characters? Good for her. I love Louise Simonson. So, the cemetery encounter doesn't quite convince Kitty, although she does accept that Doug probably did not kill a random stranger to fake a corpse just in case his friend who could phase happened— to come take a look in his coffin, which, you know, comes up briefly. Ooh. Kitty apologizes. Doug, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to- Douglock. My name is Douglock. I am not now, nor have I ever been, Douglas Ramsey. Is this really so hard for you to accept? I do not mean to sound harsh, but I am fast reaching the limits of my tolerance for this- this nonsense- Douglas Ramsey is dead. A hard truth, but a truth nonetheless. Then tell me why you look exactly like him. Why did you choose his face of all things? I cannot. I can only tell you what I know, and I know that I am not your friends, Douglas Ramsey. I know this, Kitty. I wish for your sake it were otherwise, but it is not. I am Douglock. No more. No less. Douglock. So this is where it really starts to feel like New Mutant 64, because Kitty is increasingly frantically trying to tap into some kind of nostalgia. She's taking him back to their favorite pizza place, to, you know, all of the places that, that she thinks he should remember fondly. Douglock doesn't like sausage on pizza, where it was Doug's favorite, but that's not enough. She's going to take him back to his house, which again is one of the places where Warlock took Doug's corpse. 
Before we move to this Ramsey's house, though, let's talk a little about them hanging out in the pizza parlor, because part of this jumped out at me as strange. Kitty mentions to Doug Locke and Wolfsbane that they should both make sure their image inducers function so they can pass as normal humans, even though they're wearing, like, clothing over their, you know, selves. And that makes sense for Doug Locke, because he's made of yellow circuitry, so fair enough. But it was kind of a big deal back in X-Factor when Haven gave Wolfsbane the ability after so long to finally turn back into her non-wolfy, non-furry form. You know, pale skin, spiky red hair, not lupine features. And what we've seen with her, really for a while now, since she's been an Excalibur certainly, is that she's always in at least a slightly hybrid wolf form. She's always got brown, presumably furry skin, and that long hair, and her limbs are a little bit lupine as well. It's just such a weird continuity thing to be consistently inconsistent about. That I'm willing to gloss as that being the form that she's most comfortable in or feels most like herself in. Because while she could change back to her human form, for a long time this has been kind of her base form. Well, true, but it kind of reminds me of Laura Kinney not wanting to call herself X-23 ever again. Like, for so long, that slightly hybrid form that Raina had to stay in so that she didn't go mindless from the Extinction Agenda stuff, that was like a curse. She didn't see that as something to be reclaimed. She just saw it as something she didn't want to do anymore. She was so happy. She was dancing around and smiling when she was able to turn fully human again. And so I'm not against her reclaiming that. It's just we never got that scene, you know? We never had that addressed. Yeah, yeah, it would have been nice to see some connection between those two status quos. Ah, well. The other fun thing about that scene is Kitty reminds them about the image inducers, but neither of them is drawn as using an image inducer. Like, they're just drawn in their regular forms. Well, that's because uh, it's like in Dungeons & Dragons. We, the readers, know that their more human appearances are illusory, so we just see right through them. I have questions. That's fair. Actually, I was just reading some Star Wars comics, a miniseries called TIE Fighter, which was uh, really good. And every time we see the TIE Fighter pilots, it just has this sort of uh, ghost outlines of their big black tubey helmets over their faces, so we can still see their expressions, but still see that they're wearing helmets. I thought that was a good compromise. Maybe they could do something like that in this issue with a number of pencilers. Yes, well, I I think the a number of pencilers may have been part of the issue here. Yeah, well, there is that. Anyway, the Ramsey's house. Right, so Kitty phases into Doug's old bedroom, and that's what finally convinces her. Because while there are pictures of him all over it, his parents have turned it into a den. And they understood that Doug was gone and dealt with their grief, and they've gone on with their lives, and Kitty realizes that she really needs to as well. It's a really nice metaphor, and I think it's supported pretty well by back at the pizza place when Kitty asks for a waiter that she knows, and the waitress who's there is like, no, he he hasn't worked here in a long time, lady. Like, she's just so stuck in the past and the way things used to be in these, like, idyllic remembered days that are not around anymore. Kitty, relative to the X-Men, has always been a character who's driven pretty heavily by idealization and nostalgia, and that's something we see in her sometimes as an adult, too, even after this. You know, in that regard, she kind of reminds me of Iceman. Like, of the original five, he was really the one that was always that way, which makes it really interesting that they dated for a while before he came out. Oh, absolutely. I was going to say, there are, there are a lot of reasons that it makes sense for those two characters to really connect. Totally. That's a connection I'd like to see more of these days. One of the many, many forgotten ex-friendships. I guess he was on The Marauders with her for a long time. But still, that specific one-on-one connection. So on to the B-plot. 
And this story is framed, as many stories are, I was going to say in this era, but no, as many stories are across X-Men, with Piotr Rasputin brooding. Do you remember that one time he was brooding by pulling trees out of the ground and Chris Claremont's narration and John Byrne's art were, like, fighting each other and that's why John Byrne decided to stop drawing X-Men because he got so mad? I do. I do remember that. Anyway, this is less dramatic. Although, I guess there are a lot of creative team shifts around this time in Excalibur, but uh, that was probably going to happen anyway. I mean, it's possible that the reason there are so many artists on this book is that each one of them in turn got frustrated with depictions of Colossus and quit the book and handed it off to the next. Do you think that's why Sunfire quit the X-Men so many times way back at the start? Because he just took one look at Colossus and was just like, oh, fuck this, and left? No. Yeah, probably not. He had lots of other things to be mad about. Colossus's inner monologue here, I think, is telling and well-written. Facing the endless expanse of sea, unstopping torrent, I believe a man's resolve is a castle of sand, not a fortress of steel. Piotr has been through so much and has just been broken down so much at this point. So, yeah, he's really pondering the fact that he's always wanted somewhere to belong, but then after a lifetime of disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, maybe it's time for him to stop putting his destiny in the hands of others. In the meantime, Nightcrawler, who's the leader of Excalibur at the moment, he's been thinking a lot about the Xavier Protocols. You remember those, Jay? Yeah, that's Pro- Professor Xavier's detailed descriptions of how he would kill each of the X-Men. <laughs> God damn it. Speaking of nostalgia, let us return to the classic Kitty Pride panel in which she yells, Professor Xavier is a jerk. Boy, is he. And those were uncovered at Xavier's behest during Onslaught when the team went to find them to find out how to stop Onslaught, who was at that point partly Professor Xavier. Exactly. So it's interesting here that Moira is not sure what to do with the protocols, because of course she is science lady and is in charge of all the computery stuff. And Kurt orders her, as leader of Excalibur, to send the Xavier Protocols to the X-Men proper. That's not really a dynamic that we've seen. Like, Moira kind of runs the show here. Excalibur is just here as her guests, basically. But on the other hand, the Xavier Protocols don't include detailed instructions for her execution. I think it's absolutely reasonable that Kurt pulls rank under the circumstances, because... He and the other X-Men are affected by these in a way that Moira just straight up is not. Yeah, fair. Although, given the House of X, Powers of Ten retcon of Moira's true nature, I kind of wonder if she was buried in some deep level of the Xavier Protocols. And that's why she was so reluctant to have the X-Men get their hands on them? Maybe, yeah. See, that's the thing. Like, clearly the Moira X retcon, um, I'm not going to outright say it, because if you know, you know, and if you don't, you don't. Haven't we done a cold open on it? Yeah, we probably have. Yeah, so Moira's a mutant, it turns out. We just don't know at this point. But all of these comics are written as very clearly as if she's not. But if you remember that that's there in the background and nobody knows about it, even though that was not intended at all, it leads to a great deal of fun no-prize attempts. I mean, it's an example of a retcon that really adds to the material before it was was conceived, rather than subtracting from it. But let's be real, there are so many direct contradictions. I mean, Hickman himself admitted that those were there. Oh, for sure, for sure. So, anyway. The Mutant Liberation Front has been waiting patiently for the Midnight Runner to leave, and then attacks Muir Isle. 
This is this is a a mutant anarchist group. They are led by Moonstar, who at one point in the story reveals herself to in fact be Danielle Moonstar to Moira's absolute fucking astonishment. Because whoever could have guessed that a character going by Danny Moonstar's last name and exhibiting her powers might actually be Danny Moonstar. Like, oh my god. Okay, I'm going to defend my however many year old self when I read those comics and was surprised that that was really Danny. Her powers are a little different. Now she fires energy arrows that like psychically shock people, and that's not the same. And I thought at the time that maybe she was just someone impersonating Moonstar, and that's why she was using her name. Like, I'm just saying, Moira's a smart lady. I was theoretically a smart kid. We can be confused and wrong sometimes, and that's okay. Miles, buddy, if you have any consistent feature, it is giving creative teams' intentions too much credit. Well, here I'm just giving a fictional character too much credit. Well, no, you're here you're giving the, the intent of the folks writing the fictional character too much credit. I suppose. But uh, yeah, the Mutant Liberation Front they used to be run by Strife, then they were run by Rainfire, and uh, both Strife and Rainfire are gone, so now they've sort of gone independent. And it seems like Moonstar is not their leader leader so much as maybe their field leader for this operation. Yeah, she is. She mentions that that she was given leadership of this operation. She was assigned it by someone. Can we just talk for a second about how rad Danny's Mutant Liberation Front era costume is? Yeah, she's got kind of a Destiny-style mask. Yeah, and it's sort of this uh, dress thing with a big loincloth part coming out in the front. It's all yellow and red and blue, and like that shouldn't work. It should be horribly clashy, but it actually looks kind of awesome for a 90s villain. Yeah, it's it's pretty rad. I wish she'd maintained a few more aspects of it when she went back to not working with the Mutant Liberation Front. Um, meanwhile, by the way, as as Moira is being absolutely shocked by Danny's identity, uh, Danny also uses every possible thought balloon to tell the readers over and over again that she's a double agent and she hates that she has to do this. And gosh, she hopes that no one suspects. And gosh, it's hard to be a double agent like she is being a double agent now with the MLF. Hey, it's more subtle than that one annual where she was doing a Dear Diary on the MLF computer with a giant goddamn screen that anybody who was behind her could have seen, okay? My point here is that there may be characters better suited to infiltration than one who hears pseudonym and uses her own last name. Uh, shall I refer you to Samson Guthrie and Drake Roberts, who are currently infiltrating the Graydon Creed presidential campaign? I mean, in all fairness to continuity, they do come off like a group of kids who learn subtlety from Magneto. <laughs> That's a really good point. Well, anyway, we see some MLF regulars here, like Wildside's there, Forearm's there. There's a guy named Selby who's a hacker who we, like, never see again. We don't even see him in issue number 105, the second half of this plot line. He just sort of isn't there anymore. And a bunch of random goons, which I guess makes sense. I mean, the MLF have had random goons before. I don't know that I would want to be a random goon for them, because these are very much cannon fodder-type troops. I'd like to think that he's named after the Marie Selby Botanical Gardens in Sarasota. Oh, maybe. He's kind of a scholarly guy, but he appreciates botany. It's a cool place, too. It is a cool place. Yeah, I haven't been there in too long. I think the last time I was there was maybe five years ago. I wonder if it's still there. A lot of places closed. It seems likely. Outdoor attractions tend to do pretty well, and it seemed pretty, pretty stable oh well marie selby if you're listening then uh i applaud you having come back from the dead because i'm pretty sure you died a long time ago good job zombie marie selby mm -hmm. anyway 
Anyway, the MLF is here for the legacy virus data and the Xavier protocols. And they're, they're going after them on the premise that facilities associated with Charles Xavier are no longer adequately secure for information critical to the, to mutant survival, which, you know, is actually a pretty valid point. The MLF made some valid points, but uh, maybe just this one, like, ever. Yeah, the MLF made a valid point. One time in this issue, in this not fill-in, but bridge issue. You tried, MLF. You tried. They do successfully take out Captain Britain and Megan outside, though, and use them as human shields once they get in, and so uh, they did a good job there. You succeeded, MLF. You succeeded. To a point. Because... Now, initially, Mora and Kurt are going to set up a force field to protect the Xavier Protocol's room. But Mora disconnects it after Kurt leaves. She also shuts down the audible intruder alarm that's going off. And I love the way this is portrayed visually. There's this sort of bree, bree, bree that's going across multiple entire pages. And, like, it starts and ends in the middle of the sound effect word to make it very clear just how constant it is. And once she verbally deactivates it, the bree, bree, bree just ends with a breet partway across a page, which really gets across the abruptness of the end of something that had previously been overwhelmingly constant. It's a really nice little lettering trick. Now, the MLF seeing the Xavier Protocol's chamber unguarded senses a possible trap, and they decide they're going to try to set it off by just sort of yeeting the unconscious Captain Britain and Megan through the doorway first, at which point Mara restarts the force field, and Moonstar declares that the mission has failed, and she's pulling the plug, and they're all going to go home now, and they do. Yeah, like you mentioned, this bit of the storyline doesn't really go anywhere. Like, it's kind of fun. It's nice seeing all the uh, heroes be quite tense, and there's some fisticuffs and stuff. But really, the star of these two issues of this bridge story is absolutely the Douglot kitty Wolfsbane thing. Unquestionably. So now we move on to the beginning of the next run of Excalibur by a writer who's going to finish out the run, Ben Robb. And I remember when we were collecting all of Excalibur, because Excalibur and New Mutants were the two comics we collected all of together way back in the day, we got to this run and we were not terribly into it, especially after the very strong Claremont Davis run, the Solo Davis run, the Warren Ellis run. Like, we loved all those, and this, eh, less so. Yeah, I'm really interested in how this is going to read when we revisit it, because it's an, it's a run that I remember thinking very, very little of when I first encountered it. But that said, this is a pretty damn strong first issue, and that's saying something because there are four pencilers and seven inkers. Salvador La Roca is going to become the main penciler for at least a few issues after this one, so there's that, although after that the book won't have a consistent penciler for the rest of its run uh but this is solid like it feels itself almost more like a bridge issue but it's got a lot of good character work now as for ben robb um he had small stints all over the place in marvel mostly excalibur spinoffs and some 2099 stuff he also did a bunch of comics for the phantom the old pulp hero and he did the hardy's x-men promotional tie-in issues time gliders in which in a kid's comic the x-men fight uh, the character Empyrean, whose name actually wasn't Empyrean, that was just his base, uh, who's trying to go back in time to give the entire human population the legacy virus so he can eat their death energy. Which, I gotta say, for a comic that is a tie-in for kids' meals is pretty fucking dark. 
Yeah, that's that's going kind of hard. Right? So, anyway, uh, as far as the creative team, we have, like I said, Ben Robb as the writer. For pencilers, we have Casey Jones, Rob Haynes, Randy Green, and Aaron Lepresti. For inkers, we have, oh boy, Jason Martin, Rob Haynes, Rick Ketchum, Rachel Pinnock, Aaron Lepresti, Tom Simmons, and Casey Jones. For colors, we have Arianne Lenchoak, and letters are, you guessed it, Richard Starkings and Comicraft. The issue has a pretty strong start. The narration tells us of Colossus's horrible family losses, his leaving Xavier for the Acolytes, his attempts to redeem himself with Excalibur. As he paints with brushes and sponges and a broom and his own metal hands dipped in paint, the first page is him slashing paint across the canvas, a, a single panel for the whole page, and then close-up panels on the next of each other tool as he thinks about this as the narration recaps his past I think this is Casey Jones doing these pages, and he just kills the pacing and the dynamism of it. And throughout all of this, Colossus is listening to the song Firestarter by The Prodigy. Jay, do you remember The Prodigy from the mid to late 90s? Only very, very vaguely. You've got to remember that I was not closely in touch with the popular culture of my youth. They were sort of uh, angry, loud, electronic music. They had a famous song called Smack My Bitch Up. Uh, Firestarter was another one of their songs. Um, Their music's really catchy, but it's not exactly what I would expect Colossus to listen to. What would you expect Colossus to listen to? I don't know, like classical music by Russian composers. However, at this stage in Colossus's life... He's very specifically trying new artistic styles. He's trying to let his emotions out and come to terms with them. So listening to angry electronic music while he paints with wide, angry swaths and chaos and randomness, like, you know, I'm going to give it to the issue. I'm going to give it to the Prodigy's Firestarter. Do you think this might be some kind of residue from the Peter Nicholas stuff? Oh, right. That thing where when he went through the Siege Perilous uh, back in the Outback era and had his my his memory sort of erased and restarted, he was the artist Peter Nicholas in America. Uh, maybe. That would have been pre-The Prodigy, but maybe he was listening to who was around then. I don't know. Was, was Daft Punk around then? Maybe Daft Punk was around then. I don't know, but he was involved with Callisto, and I feel like this is at least marginally closer to what I expect I'd expect her to listen to, although still maybe a little bit too overproduced. Maybe. I mean, Callisto is the fire starter. It's true. Uh, but that's a good point. We always forget those post-Siege Perilous identities that, that so many of the X-Men had when they were rewritten. I like, don't. Well, okay, you don't. I try not to. We remember, you know, Havoc being a Genosian magistrate because that was really integral to the plot. But, yeah, Colossus started fresh, was in a relationship with Callisto, was a successful visual artist, and then that just sort of all went away along with the X-Men's invisibility to cameras. They just sort of got forgotten. Yeah. Ah, well. Anyway, what Colossus is painting is a wedding gift for Captain Britain and Megan. He's painting a portrait of Megan, but a very, uh, shall we say, not literal version. And she loves it. She says it's random and chaotic, and it feels like her, and Brian's going to love it. And that kind of actually fits the way she's drawn here. She's drawn very strangely, like very much a long-eared, pixie-featured, big-headed, fair folk kind of character. The way she's written is kind of like that, too, which is pretty different than how we've seen her written in the Alice era, where she was really kind of uh, mature and savvy and had very much learned about the society in which she had lived uh, over her long history of trying to figure it out. 
And here it's, I don't know if it's a regression exactly, but she's very much that kind of pixie-esque character. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think part of that sort of fits the portrait and fits what they're going for with, you know, with her being this 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 sort of creature of glorious chaos, her, her fate origin. It's just such a strange shift, you know? Like, it reminds me kind of of how Caliban's personality was greatly altered when Jeff Loeb took over Cable and X-Force. Like, it's not a bad thing, but it can be very jarring when a new writer starts and that happens. However, like all good things, their portrait session is interrupted by a phone call. It's not one of the X-Men, because as we know, the X-Teams do not know how to use the phone. It's the Acolytes! You know, the group of Magneto-cultist types that Colossus was briefly part of. Specifically, this is Frenzy, Joanna Cargill, who I think is probably both of our favorite acolyte. Oh yeah, hands down. Oh, she's great. She was on the Alliance of Evil back in the day. She was a main char- character during the Age of X story, which is totally underrated. Uh, she's She was in Sword recently. God, Age of X is so damn good. It is, and everyone confuses it with Age of X-Men, or confuses Age of X-Men with it, which, well, you know, fair enough. They're, they're pretty different. Yup. I mean, they're both kind of alternate realities where the characters have different lives, so there's that, I guess. I mean, everything called Age of something is. Yeah, that's true. Age of Jay and Miles. What would that be like? Probably just us talking about, I don't know, Harvey and Janet or something. I don't know. If the idea is that we we get to shape this world, I feel like socialist utopia, maybe? I'm into a socialist utopia, but maybe not the way the X-Men did utopia, because that ended up not working out in the end. Well, that wasn't a utopia, that was utopia. Okay, so like lowercase u? Yeah. Dig it. Well, anyway, the Acolytes are trying to create their own utopia by re-raising their crashed satellite spaceship base, Avalon. And they want Colossus to join up. They want to gather all of the former Acolytes to be part of this new dream of mutant separatism. Well, and not only that, but they're calling from another place that is a a major stab from Colossus's past. They are calling from the X-Men's old Outback base in Australia. You know, just referencing my favorite X-Men era immediately makes me more sympathetic to this issue. Yeah, likewise. Before we get to that, though, Moira is writing a letter to Professor X. She's talking about her mixed feelings toward her abusive ex-husband, Joe, who's dead, her guilt at the two of them failing their son, Proteus, who Colossus ended up killing, although that's not mentioned here, because she's coming to terms with the fact that she'll be dead soon, too, just like her husband, just like her son. Alas, Xavier's email has been shut down by the government, using their government powers, and this scene, again, makes pretty much no sense in the context of what we will later find out in House of X about Moira, but it's some good characterization and it's some good continuity work. Like, Ben Rob is really picking up each of these characters, or at least, you know, the ones he's focusing on, in this case, Colossus and Moira, mainly, and kind of figuring out what makes them tick, figuring out where they are at this point in their arcs. It is, however, some god-awful comics storytelling. Because this scene, this scene has Moira thought-bubbling out the entire letter in her phonetic Scottish accent, which uh, Ben Robb does not write any better than anyone else has. I mean, Ellis did a good job on it. Um, I feel like Ellis is the only person who's done a good job on it so far at this point. Then the last panel is a computer screen with the entire fucking written out letter that we've just seen in all of the thought bubbles, which is not a great use of space. Okay, but at least the typed out letter is not written in her accent. I do remember that at least one of the Guthries did write a letter home specifically in the accent. That was Sam. 
damn it, Sam. Oh, yeah, and then Paige didn't later. She's always been a little sharper than Sam. Well, she code switches. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sam never really bothered with that. Actually, Sam's very, very intelligent. I, I don't want to downplay that. Um, it's just that Paige is so much of an overachiever that I think she's uh, more eager to cover up any potential associations with any negative connotations of Appalachia. Well, right. And, and again, in, in writing and in writing in a context where she's been primarily you know, not among her family. Yeah. That said, Sam, don't write in your accent. Moira, good job not writing in your accent. Ben Rob, or possibly one of the many, many artists, you probably didn't need to show her read the letter in her head and also have it on screen. Yeah, and it's not it's not just that you you can work out the words. No, the computer screen is it's like half the page. I mean, we assume that this issue was kind of rushed, right? Hence all the pencilers and inkers. So maybe that was a way of getting a little more real estate out of the page without having to pay anybody for that part. Shifting a bit of work to the letter. There we go. Richard Sarkins and Comic Craft. I mean, he and they are collectively a lettering machine. So, you know, they got that. I'm imagining something absolutely Rube Goldbergian. A lettering machine? Yeah. Like, that's not a computer and a Cintiq. <laughs> right. Well, anyway, Kitty and Pete Wisdom are worried about Moira. She's been up here in her dead son Proteus's bedroom with the windows open, hanging out for a long, long time. But they don't have too much time to worry because it's mission time. That's right. We're headed to Australia. Well, not Brian and Megan, because Kurt mentions they're elsewhere, so uh, they're not there. But the rest of the team. And as they're on the plane, can we talk about Colossus's outfit? Yeah, we can. So his outfit in this era is similar to his classic one, you know, like the yellow stripe thing and the red shouldery bits and the red underwear part. But during this era, the shoulder pads have gotten bigger, and there are, there's some red spandex on the inside of his legs, like the inner half of his legs. And you can just sort of see the metal banding on the outer half like you can see it on his arms. It looks really cool. For whatever reason, whatever artist does this page of him in the Midnight Runner, and it's a very well-drawn page, the art is, is good, has decided to reverse that leg part which means that instead we see red spandex on the outer halves of each of Colossus's legs and the metal banding, his bare metal legs on the inside, which to me just makes it look like he's wearing chaps, like he's some kind of an ex-male stripper or something. Could be a cowboy. He could be a cowboy, but cowboys wore jeans under their chaps. I don't think they just only wore the chaps. I think that's largely a stripper thing. I mean, I'm not a stripper or a cowboy, so I couldn't say for sure. I mean, he could be both. So Piotr Rasputin, in trying to find himself, his own path, what you're saying, is now a stripper cowboy superhero. Yeah. Well done, Piotr. Get on with your bad self. So alas, Piotr finds no joy in his assless chaps. He is glum. He's worried about seeing the folks who kind of represent the worst period of his life and the worst decisions he's made during it. Wolfsbane comforts him like she comforted Kitty in the last story arc. Shifting to her human, well, okay, mostly human, like we talked about, form to try to convince him to shift out of his metal form. Remember, when Colossus was all messed up during the Acolyte era, he refused to shift out of his metal form. He refused to give up that symbolic coldness, hardness, protection. And that's kind of what we're seeing now. And we're also seeing, once again, Wolfsbane as the compassionate center of the team. Not, you know, just purely a caretaking, emotional, laborful character, 
but somebody who's really found peace with herself after a troubled past and tries to share that with others. And I love that about this era of Wolfsbane. I'm not going to say it's consistent, but when it comes out, it totally works. Why do they call them assless chaps? Like, are there chaps with asses? I think it's just that it's so exciting that it's a garment that does not cover your butt that you want to really call attention to that fact. I mean, most garments don't cover your butt. Well, right, but like a pants-like garment that doesn't cover your butt. Most pants do. I mean, your butt's the second most important part for them to cover based on, you know, decency laws. I actually had a college roommate who you remember and the listeners absolutely do not who uh, was on a trivia team called the Assless Chaps because he and his other trivia teammate member both had very, very flat butts. I was thinking about that as we were discussing this. (laughs) I'm glad we have this similar frame of reference, which is only tangentially related to X stuff. I will always remember the Assless Chaps. (laughs) Well done, Assless Chaps. (laughs) Anyway, where were we? (laughs) On a plane, on the way to Australia. Right, so as they're about to land, Colossus tells the team, oh, I forgot to say, but there are landmines all over, that the X-Men planted all over here when it was our base. It's not as they're about to land, it's as Kurt's getting out of the Midnight Runner. Oh, right, he sort of yoinks Kurt back into the plane, yeah. Um, And Colossus continues to explain, we set them so that only the people who lived at the base, the eight X-Men at the time and Madeline Pryor, I assume, would not trigger them. Anybody else's genetic signatures would trigger these landmines, which, A, I'm not sure that makes sense. B, I don't think they had the technology for that, although they did have some reaver tech, I guess. And C, that seems very harsh. Like, you could just have, I don't know, a moat. Or a wall, or a lock. You don't need to murder anybody who comes to deliver the paper. A strongly worded keep out sign. Something. Keep out, please. But please isn't all capital letters and underlined, so it's kind of an aggressive please. Beware of psychodrama. Oh yeah, I mean, that's that's legit. Uh, And a sign that says, why didn't you call first? And then parentheses just says, ha ha, because the X-Men know that nobody calls, ever. And then landmines. Yeah, there are landmines. They're here. And... Maybe the landmines are a metaphor. Oh, yeah. Kind of like that thing with uh, the guy who worked at the pizza place, not working at the pizza place anymore a couple issues ago. Or Space Cat. Space Cat is a metaphor that is also a real cat. Yeah. Well, what is definitely a metaphor is that Colossus decides he needs to be the one to deactivate these landmines. Deactivate being something of a euphemism here. Okay, this part makes no sense. Like, he just got done telling us that his genetic signature would not trigger them, but he just sort of runs through the field and blows them up because he doesn't remember where they were. I don't know. I mean, it it works. We know he's seeking penance. We know that him being invincible and making his way through this world of pain and destruction is, is sort of what he's been experiencing. Like, I'm okay with it, but it just seems like a lot of setup for something that the setup ends up not really being related to. So what I assumed the logic was there is that they won't set off when he's nearby because he won't trigger their scanners, but that physical contact will still set them off. Okay, so he's just sort of sweeping through there to clear a path for Excalibur. Exactly. I mean, okay, I'm, I'm all right with that. I'm just glad that his delightful cowboy stripper outfit was not hurt despite the explosions. Well, it's, it's invulnerable. Like him. It's made of organic stripper cowboy steel. I mean, it's a costume. It's made of organic... Fabric or leather or unstable molecules. Organic unstable molecules. Artisanally crafted, organic, free-range, unstable molecules. I mean, they've just got carbon in them. I don't know what the big deal is. 
we, we actually had a, a number of listeners. I think we we quoted one of them in a recent episode talk about how the organic steel thing works. We are um, not scientists at all. Colossus continues his penance by, after blowing up all of the landmines with their genetic what's-its, opening the hatch to the X-Men's underground base to meet the Acolytes and sealing it behind him. Does he do that, or is it one of the Acolytes? I got the impression it was him. There's a sort of electrostatic field that Nightcrawler mentions is preventing him from teleporting in, and presumably also prevents Kitty from phasing herself in. The logic here is a little shaky. Like, don't get me wrong, I genuinely like this issue. I think it's a very good piece of character work, and despite having a million artists, the art is quite good. But these little details just don't really hold up to scrutiny, and and I'm okay with that, but it's weird. Yeah, yeah, agreed. To Colossus's credit, at least he didn't go off on his own for this meeting with mysterious villains without telling anyone like Havoc did back in X-Factor, which led to him getting captured and brainwashed and turned into a villain. Again. Again. So, you know, even if Colossus does insist on doing the dangerous shit on his own, at least he has backup. At least he did the equivalent of leaving a note. I mean, Havoc left a note. No, no, he didn't. Those were the bad guys forging a note in his handwriting. Oh, right. God damn it, Havoc. God damn it, Havoc, indeed. In the underground base, two of the Acolytes are indeed present. There's Unision and Scanner. The former, as usual, is a total zealot for the Acolytes. The latter, as usual, is kind of unsure. Remember, when we've seen Scanner before, she's never been quite certain the way the other Acolytes are. She's always kind of wondered if she's doing the right thing. The other Acolytes have seen her as weak for that reason. And Colossus kind of gets that. Of late, I have sought answers to the doubts that linger within me. Like you, I once believed I could make a greater difference in the world by following someone else's example, instead of leading by my own. Nevermore shall I live like that. And neither should you. And this makes sense. Following Xavier's dream didn't work out for Colossus. Following Magneto's dream, especially after Magneto was comatose, really didn't work out for Colossus. So... Yeah, he doesn't want anybody else to do those things either if they're not sure about it. Especially Magneto's dream. I feel like he's a lot more sympathetic to the X-Men than he is to the Acolytes. Yeah, I think that's probably a reasonable read. Scanner is indeed swayed, but Unisyan is not and tells Piotr he blew his chance, he can't come to Avalon, he can't come to her birthday party. And they leave leaving Colossus very disappointed for failing again. But not everybody thinks he did. That's right. He has he has won the grudging respect of, of the person perhaps least likely to grant it, that being Pete Wisdom. Yeah, Pete's impressed that someone actually owns their mistakes instead of trying to pass off responsibility. And this is kind of cool. This is, I think, a development that also makes sense. We know that Pete has really not liked Colossus before. doesn't help that Colossus almost killed him when he saw Pete kissing Kitty way back in the day. But for now, that's a friendship that is beginning. And it's been a while since I've read this run, and I'm curious where that's going to go. So, yeah, Jay, what did you think about this as the start of the Ben Rob run of Excalibur? It's a very, very odd starting point if you look at new writer runs as, as new arc starts. I think it's so heavily rooted, and has to be because it's it's a Colossus story in the past. And there's, I feel bad saying this, but I'm kind of getting bored of Colossus angst. No, that's that's entirely reasonable. 
Uh, hopefully this is him moving on from that. I mean, eventually we know he's going to sacrifice his life to cure the legacy virus, so uh, only kind of, I guess. But, you know, at least there's a fresh voice there. And this story does serve a purpose. I agree, it's a weird way to start a run, but it sort of serves as a stealth prequel to the Magneto miniseries in which, indeed, the Acolytes are trying to raise Avalon, and Joseph gets roped into that whole thing. But starting your run as a teaser for somebody else's miniseries? That's very strange. It's not a bad issue, it's just not an issue that feels like it brings anything new to the table, if that makes sense. I do like some of the character work, though. I do feel like the voices for especially Colossus and Moira are pretty solid. And again, so many artists, I really like the art in this issue. Yeah, no, I don't, again, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's bad. I think it's, it's perfectly adequate. This one honestly feels a little bit more like filler than the, the previous arc did. I, I think it's, I think it's just fine. I just, it, it just, I don't have strong feelings about it one way or the other. Entirely fair. But you know who we do have strong feelings about? Our listeners, and they've got questions. Sleeping Scholar asks on Tumblr, The episode on the Silver Age and the guest lawyers for Professor X's regular death fakings got me wondering, are there any mutant lawyers in the 616? In fact, there are quite a few. My brain first goes to Cable, who has a law degree which I find consistently hilarious, but also in character, I guess. There's also Harry Leland, the Black Bishop of the Hellfire Club. I don't know if he's a practicing lawyer anymore. Well, especially not in Krakoa, but he was indeed a lawyer. Later on, the comics will introduce uh, Evangeline Whedon. She turns into a dragon. Oh yeah, her power, as the Marvel database lists it, is blood-related dragon morphing, which is the name of my new power metal band. <laughs> into it. Uh, one of Madrox's independent dupes got a law degree and now goes by Matt rocks which makes me very happy he first showed up in uh, she hulk story said oh my and dazzler actually graduated magna cum laude from a pre-law college program uh but she never became a lawyer as far as her employment goes again according to the marvel database she has been a professional singer adventurer former revolutionary waitress actress gladiator dance exercise instructor model and prophet of the light riders comic book characters have long and storied careers Resume must be almost as obnoxious to format as mine. <laughs> Fair enough. And of course, as we know, Logan definitely has a degree in maritime law. Probably. That's, that's Age of Jay and Miles, right there. <laughs> exactly. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, How does Cyclops' ruby quartz visor affect his perception of color? Does he effectively have a form of quasi-color blindness? Oh, you asked in the right place, anonymous listener. Um, I know way too much about this. So the answer is generally yes. Most creative teams portray this as a heavy red filter, with the exception of Grant Morrison's run where Ruby Quartz makes everything look amber. But, fun fact, if Cyclops' eyes otherwise work like normal human eyes, neither of those representations would be accurate, because they would adjust to the tint of the visor pretty quickly, so colors would end up looking fairly close to normal to him when he was wearing it. Um... And I say that because it leads to the interesting point that it's therefore reasonable to assume that it's not just the visor that's impacting his color perception, but also his powers. A dimension of pure force and also of pure red? A dimension of pure force and it messes with your cone cells. So we're a fully listener-supported podcast, but this time we wanted to thank some of the folks who donated to Equality Florida to fight for queer and trans youth during our April donation drive. 
and and we're going to be we're going to be grouping these in bunches. We're not going to do them all in one one episode. So if you don't hear your name this time, um, it's it's still coming. But in the meantime, thank you from the bottom of our hearts to Chuck Reynolds, Eli Swihart, Ian Gonzalez, John Caden, Nicholas Doglio, Benjamin Ebert, Brendan Hutt, Cameron Huppertz, Carrie, Chris Jensen. David Ellis, Dennis K. Draws, E.K., Eric Corbin, Jamie James Wenger. Jetty Kite, Jim Darling, Kate Stanton, Kyle Still and Lydia Potts, Lodro Rinsler. Mark Paglia, Matt Nicholson, Mishi, Nick Larzelier, Philip Flores. Ethan Quinn, Andy Bartholomew, Annie, Michael Bernstein, and Michael McDonald. Again, thank you so much. As of the time we recorded this, somehow this community has raised over 30 thousand dollars to fight for queer and trans kids in florida and that is amazing that is uncanny and as of recording time not as of release time we're actually still going we've that that's still with one day left on on the campaign well done everybody and with that Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free... Check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, the Master of Magnetism finally gets his own miniseries. Sort of. Sort of.